so if we've not met before, uh, my name is Colin. I'm part of the communities team here along with Gavin. And just a little bit of context for me, my wife Maddie and I moved here about five years ago, a year into being married. And if there's one thing I've discovered about being married for almost six years now, it's that my image of myself in my mind doesn't always correspond to reality. Or so I've just been told. Uh, for example, through the keen observation of my wife, I've discovered that I cannot, and I, and I mean absolutely cannot, read lips. Uh, and... My wife, my wife Maddie, is an introvert. I'm an extrovert. So on frequent occasions, we'll be at a party, and I'll be having a great time socializing because extroverts have more fun. And <laughs> she will be at this party very ready to go home because introverts have less fun. And because she's emotionally intelligent and wants to respect social cues, she'll be really subtle, and she'll try to lip to me and she'll like give me like, like this is like a sleeping sign language here. And you know, in most situations, most people would take context clues and the little bit of information that they have and try to piece together a message. This is what normal human beings do. Uh, this is not what I do. <laughs> Instead, I choose to respond by hollering, what? <laughs> Across the party. And just completely, it's really bad. I just disrupt all social cues, and all of a sudden people are looking at her when she was trying to be subtle. It's, it's rough. All that to say, I am far less perceptive than I like to believe. It's regularly the case that all the information is right in front of my face, and I can't connect the dots. And that something can be right in front of me, and that I can't see it, or hear it, or find it. And I imagine I'm not alone. Now, what is fascinating is that almost all spiritual traditions use language of seeing and hearing and sensing as metaphors to describe the spiritual journey of understanding. So if you think with me, the Hebrew prophets were often referred to as seers. Or if we think of the Jesus tradition, it's full of metaphors and phrases that we're all familiar with, such as the blind leading the blind. Anyone who has ears, let him hear. Uh, Further, many strands of Buddhism will use the phrase seeing things as they are to describe the journey of seeing all human experience as impermanent, substanceless, and marked by suffering, which are ultimately tenets of Buddhism. Uh, the world of psychics and divination are interested in seeing beyond, transcending uh, barriers such as mortality or what can be seen. I remember one of my first experiences with a yoga class, and you're welcome for that mental picture, uh, we, were, we were in child's pose towards the end of the class, listening to Bon Iver or something like that, because it's yoga and the pearl. And in her best yoga voice, the instructor said, now begin to roll your forehead back and forth on the mat, gently massaging your third eye. And that's where things just got weird for me. And I was like, this is, this is more than I bargained for. The point is this, that from yogis to disciples of Jesus, all of us are aiming to make sense of the world, to see, to, to hear, and to understand deeper realities of substance, of meaning, of divinity. And while I don't think that all of these worldviews lead us to truth and life, here is where they are right, 
All of these worldviews acknowledge that we are not always able to see. Often we think we already see, but in reality, our perception is stunted. That we all, as human beings, have the capacity for truth to be right in front of us, and yet to still be blinded, to fail to understand. And if that's true, we must ask ourselves, is it possible that I don't see? Or as followers of Jesus, that is it possible that Jesus can be right in front of our faces and that we can still miss him? That we'd be unable to see him or hear him? And if so, why? What is it that keeps us from seeing and from hearing? With that, would you turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16? Matthew chapter 16. I love that we are again becoming a church where you can hear Bible pages, those like delicately thin pages that always feel like they're going to rip turning. And as you get there, would you stand with me? Uh, Let's stand as I read Matthew 16, 1 through 12 for us. It says this, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. (laughs) You You get the joke. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, our hope is that you would do what only you can do. The scriptures say that you're the one who leads us into truth, so would you lead us into truth tonight? Would you cause us to see, to hear, to understand you? And tonight we will walk away changed by having encountered you. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 1, our story begins with a familiar bunch, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By way of review, the Pharisees and Sadducees were two different sets of religious and political leaders who in some senses could not be more different. So imagine reading the text that representatives of the Republican and the Democratic Party both came to Jesus. You'd think, hmm, that's, that is odd. Uh, so what brings these two groups together, despite their disagreements? The text says that they came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. So though different, what the Pharisees and Sadducees could agree on was that Jesus is a problem. 
So they came to test him. And that word for test, here's the same word used in chapter 4 when Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. This is Matthew's way of tipping us off that their intentions were not good. And how did they test him? They tested him by asking him for a, quote, sign from heaven. Now, if you remember across the Gospel of Matthew, is this the first time Jesus has been asked for a sign? I heard a murmuring of no. Yeah, no. This is not the first time that Jesus has been asked for a sign. The Pharisees and the scribes came to him in chapter 12. And now in chapter 16, resistance against Jesus has grown enough that the Sadducees would come down from Jerusalem and team up with the Pharisees to challenge Jesus together. It's unclear exactly what kind of sign these leaders are looking for. Certainly by now they would have heard of Jesus' miracles. But these were not enough. They were looking for something that would, without a doubt, and on their terms, show show them that Jesus was from God, a divine stamp of approval. This is an authority challenge. It's a moment of saying, hey, let's see if you are who you say you are, just like Jesus' temptation in the desert. And like the devil in chapter 4, they want something that's showy and powerful. Their arms are crossed, and they're assuming that he can't rise to the challenge, that he isn't who he's claimed to be. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 2. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. This is so Jesus. So Jesus sidesteps the request and begins talking about the weather, like you do when you're Jesus, which I think is brilliant. Uh, he, do, he doesn't play along. And what he says is, hey, you know when you look at the sky in the morning and you see how it's all red and you know it's going to be nice weather that day? Or when you look at the sky and you see this and you know that it's going to be stormy? For us, Jesus might say, you know when you look at the sky and you see those ominous gray clouds in the distance and you know that your sunshine is going to be very (laughs) short-lived? Which for me as a, as a Californian just like feels like a personal attack. It's really, it's super, it's, it hurts. Um, he goes on. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. And notice that language of interpret, to understand, to see. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So Jesus, notice Jesus is making a pun here. He's saying you can interpret the signs of the skies. That's uranos in Greek. But you're still looking for a sign from heaven. Same word, uranos in Greek. So skies and heaven are the same word in the Greek language. And so what Jesus is saying, you're looking for a sign, but the kingdom of heaven, it's it's plain and obvious. It's right in front of your face. And yet you don't get it. You don't see. And though Jesus is punny, he's far from playful. Verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. So this first line is exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes in chapter 12, almost verbatim. And it re-emphasizes for us that Jesus refuses to do miracles on call. Instead, he points them to this cryptic sign of Jonah. I covered this in detail in a teaching last March, so you can go back and listen to that if you're interested. But by way of review, I think the most likely meaning for the sign of Jonah uh, is Jesus' preaching for repentance, which mirrors Jonah's preaching to the Ninevites, which is then fully vindicated by his death and resurrection, mirroring Jonah's three days in the fish 
and then coming out of the fish. So his preaching and his death and resurrection all together mirror Jonah to form one sign. But why does Jesus like using this example so much? Again, this is the second time that he's said this. I believe Jesus uses this example to contrast the response of the Ninevites with that of the religious leaders. Remember back to the story of Jonah. Um, here's an image from VeggieTales telling of the story, <laughs> just in case I've lost you. Now, if you remember the story correctly, Jonah preached a meager seven-word sermon. Now, imagine with me if I got up and I preached a seven-word sermon. And some of you were like, thank God, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> he preached a seven-word sermon, and the whole city of Nineveh repented. It says that even the cows repented, which is amazing. They turned on a dime. And by contrast, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and doing miracles for years now. And still, these leaders are looking for a sign. Still, they're cynical, closed off, and challenging his authority. And because of that, Jesus turns and walks away. Again, Jesus is not interested in their game. So he hops in a boat, and then verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. So Jesus and his disciples hop in a boat yet again and set off on another journey. They'll likely be gone for a while living on the road. And what do the disciples forget to bring? Bread, which is a problem when you're going to travel for a while. Verse 6. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now remember, Jesus just came off of a really intense encounter with powerful religious leaders. And so now he's among his dearest friends, and he wants to reflect on that experience with his disciples. And, and as a teacher, he's concerned that they would learn from that experience, that they would learn from it as they reflect on the experience together. And so he warns them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. On a semi-related note, has anyone else noticed the sudden spike in Portlanders making their own bread? Uh, like, people are really into it. Like, uh, they're sharing starters with each other, comments like, yeah, I started with an easy sourdough, but now I've moved on to more advanced loaves, which I didn't know advanced <laughs> loaves were a thing. I just thought they were all loaves on the same level. Uh, I knew it was getting out of hand when a friend of mine, who I don't think is here, so I'll keep anonymous, uh, showed up to our baby shower with his bread starter in a bowl, holding it on his hip like it was his baby at our baby shower. And he was kneading it like every hour on the hour, like, like a child that needed care. And now some of you are thinking, uh, I've been making my own bread for years. And we get it. You've been around since the days of old Portland. We are proud of you. Uh, but for those of us who aren't making our own bread, you can cause bread to rise by inserting just a little bit of yeast into the dough. It doesn't take much. And that little bit of yeast is enough to cause the entirety of that dough to rise. Verse 7. They discussed this among themselves. The disciples are chatting and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. <laughs> so just hear this for a moment. The disciples hear Jesus' teaching and they think, dang, Jesus is mad. Like he's super mad we didn't bring any bread. As if, as if Jesus is making like this passive-aggressive jab at them. <laughs> like he decided to teach this teaching because like, oh, I'll show them. You didn't bring bread. 
you can imagine them whispering, who forgot the bread? I swear, Peter, I told you. And he's like, oh, it was, on, it was Andrew. Because it's probably Peter, because Peter's always messing up in the Gospels. Uh, but they're missing the point. Like the previous encounter, Jesus is using a pun of sorts to teach and to make his point. But they don't get it. And so in verse 8, we see Jesus' frustration building. It says, aware of their discussion, Jesus asks, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? He's, he's saying, you of little faith, don't you trust yet? Why, why would you think I'm talking about bread? And then he goes on, don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Now, have the disciples been in a bread predicament before? <laughs> yes, yes, they have. And so Jesus reminds them of what has happened. He's saying, don't, don't you remember the time with the five loaves that became enough for 5,000? And then he reminds them of another time, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls that you gathered? Again, that you've been in the situation not once, but twice, and both times there was more than enough bread to go around. We're seeing that bread is actually not that big of a problem, guys. And then verse, <laughs> verse 11, how is it that you don't understand, it's strong language, that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Notice he repeats himself. He's emphatic. He really wants them to get th this through their head. Verse 12, then they understood. A light kind of went on in their heads that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast using bread, go figure, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That, the word teaching can be uh, translated doctrine or even thought of as a way of thinking. Okay, let's, let's come up for air. How are we doing? Good. I, I love a good woo. That's, that's great. Now, these two related stories feel kind of odd at first brush. So Jesus has this run-in with the re religious leaders, and then he scolds them, and he leaves them in the dust when they demand a sign of him. And then he reflects with the disciples on the experience in a semi-cryptic pun, becoming frustrated when they fail to understand him. So what are we to do with these, this story or these two stories? And if per our most recent uh, series, this story is not just a story, but it's scripture, how is Jesus intending to meet with us through this text? I think the invitation for us lies in what these two stories have in common. Notice first that the leaders are taught by Jesus with a pun, as are the disciples. And then Jesus uses strong language to correct the religious leaders, and then he uses strong language to correct the disciples. And ultimately, both the leaders and the disciples misunderstand Jesus. So the key point of connection between these two stories is this, that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the disciples fail to understand Jesus. They don't see him. They don't understand him or hear him, but for two different reasons. Put another way, both the leaders and the disciples miss Jesus and his message because their senses are dulled. They're not as perceptive as they like to believe, but their senses were dulled by two different things. If I were to sum it up, they fail to understand Jesus because of two things, sign-seeking and scarcity mentality. Uh, let's take each in turn. So sign-seeking. At first gloss, the idea of asking Jesus for a sign may seem kind of neutral. But note Jesus' strong reaction to seeking a sign. He essentially says they have all the signs they need. He condemns their search for more. 
and then he walks away. And this is strange because we very rarely see Jesus just walk away. We're used to Jesus who's, who's always open to meeting people right where they are. He's compassionate and he's patient. But why not here? It seems that Jesus believes that sign seeking is not openness or faith. It isn't honestly seeking God, but it's seeking something else. And I'd argue that underneath the search for a sign is not faith but either sensationalism or cynicism, or perhaps both. Now, sensationalism is the longing and the craving for something extravagant, something that will wow us, something that will move us emotionally, leave us speechless or shocked or in awe. It's an appeal to what we can sense, see, taste, touch, hear. So then we can believe. Then we can have faith. But an appeal to our senses isn't faith. It's, it's unfaith, if that's a word. Uh, not belief, but disbelief. The Pharisees and Sadducees had plenty of signs. Should they want to see them? In chapter 15 alone, Jesus healed the blind, the lame, and the mute, and he multiplied bread for 4,000. And so it's possible that no amount of signs can satisfy our desire for the sensational. So in our context, this could look like a couple things. Maybe you're new to faith, and so far your experience with Jesus has been moving, passionate times of worship, God speaking to you, maybe even miracles at work in your own life. And all of that is great. That's kingdom of God stuff. But if we're not careful, we can become dependent on these signs to become the lifeblood of our faith. And I think Jesus wants more for us. Or think of how, as a church, over the last couple of years, we've leaned into things of the Holy Spirit. Over the last five years, our church has become a different church, and it's been beautiful. We've, we've, we've prayed for people to be healed and seen them healed. We've heard God speak to specific people in specific ways, and all of that, again, is beautiful. Yet there's a risk that we could become more enamored with the signs than we are with the person of Jesus. That's an actual risk. Because... What happens to our faith when these things don't happen? When someone doesn't get healed? Because that happens. When God doesn't speak and seems silent, what do we do then? Our discipleship to Jesus and our belief that he is who he said he is must run deeper and stretch further back than the last time that we saw him display his power. Now, for others of us, our desire for signs is not motivated by sensationalism, but actually by cynicism, and that's probably more of us. The reason for that is because cynicism is the air we breathe in our city. In fact, it's almost cool to be cynical. You're intelligent, you're thoughtful, you're not like everyone else, you're not part of the groupthink or herd mentality. Uh, if someone is too happy, we just assume they're faking it. It's like, nah, you can't be that happy, it's too dark here. Uh, <laughs> If someone is too committed to Jesus, we deem them fundamentalist and radical or maybe just naive. Uh, we're cynical of other people and we're cynical of Jesus. Because if we're honest, sometimes we just don't expect him to show up. We, we probably a lot of times want him to prove himself, to override our concerns and our objections. I remember moving here and over the span of six to 12 months, it didn't take long, noticing myself slowly but surely becoming more and more cynical quicker to mock, quicker to undermine what someone says, show, uh, slower to believe the best of someone, and perhaps worst of all, less likely to believe that God will show up. 
In one of my favorite books on prayer, the author talks about cynicism's relationship to, to prayer. And he has this simple little line in which he says, cynicism kills hope. But I would take that a step further and say that cynicism doesn't only kill hope, but it kills faith. It kills love. It kills unity with Jesus. And that's because you cannot be in serious relationship with Jesus and be a cynical person at the same time. Because Jesus of Nazareth was the least cynical person who ever lived. And to be in relationship with Jesus requires faith, which is fundamentally at odds with cynicism. Cynicism seeks to undermine, to critique, to challenge. Faith leans in to believe. Further, and even scarier, it seems that Jesus, he doesn't waste his time with cynical people who are waiting for him to prove that he's worth following, to prove that he's real, to prove that he's true, because their mind is already made up which is a scary place for those of us who confuse our cynicism with doubt. Hear me, they are not the same. Which I think is actually a lot of what's at work in a lot of the podcast kind of deconstruction culture. I think what's on display there, sliding under the the kind of guise of doubt is actually just cynicism. It's people who are hurt and angry and cynical. And these two, again, they are not the same. Doubt aches to believe. Cynicism does not. Doubt leans into Jesus, longing for him to show up. But cynicism stands back and demands that Jesus would lean into us to give us proof and ultimately doesn't really expect him to come through. And while sensationalism and cynicism look different on the surface, they're both different expressions of unbelief and distrust. And Jesus likens this type of sensationalism and cynicism to the yeast in bread, And in doing so, what he's saying is this, watch out for this. Look out for it. Pay pay close attention to the smallest piece of this in your life. Why? Because it starts small. A passing thought, an attitude, a hint of negativity, of skepticism, and then it grows into something bigger. And it subtly influences the whole of you. And before you know it, the whole of your thinking and being is impacted. Sensationalism is toxic. Cynicism is toxic. And so Jesus warns us as his disciples to dig out every ounce of cynicism in our lives. To not settle for even a hint of it in our hearts, lest it get the best of us. Because when when someone lets this kind of teaching or doctrine Uh, And believe me, the cynicism in our city is a doctrine, if not a dogma. Uh, When someone lets it get into their mind and it starts to spread, hope for discipleship is fundamentally lost. God will not force you. He will not coerce you. He will not strong arm you into following him. He will simply be God whether you like it or not. And he will simply not wait around for you to spout off your demands. He gets to decide Uh, what it means to be God. I like this quote from W.D. Davies. He says this, the chief lesson here is that seeing is not believing. The truth is that one does not see until one believes, for the faith that holds the soul also rules one's perception. I love that line. Matthew paints here a telling picture of sad men who professing to want evidence, in fact, refuse to see the proofs right in front of their noses. Jesus' miracles, while certainly evidence that God is at work in him, are always healing or saving, work for the benefit of others, 
They're never straightforward, overpowering marvels aimed at convincing skeptics. Jesus' way is not to force belief through stupendous miracles. His persuasion is roundabout, that it may beget an authentic faith. It is Jesus' habit to hide himself and keep silent for the challenges of unbelief and his good pleasure to make himself known to a belief already held. Isn't that so good? I thought it was good. Uh, I'm indebted to Tim Mackey for that quote and for some other pieces of the sermon because he's brilliant. Uh, Now, it was not only the Pharisees and Sadducees who missed Jesus, but the disciples as well. So if the leaders closed their minds and they couldn't see him because of cynicism and sign-seeking, what about the disciples? Why, Why couldn't they understand him? I'd argue that the disciples were closed off to Jesus due to their preoccupation with the material or due to a scarcity mentality or scarcity mindset, if you prefer that language. Think back to Jesus' interaction with his disciples. He he wants to warn them against becoming like the Pharisees and Sadducees. And all they can think about is the fact they don't have any bread. Jesus is right in front of them in flesh and blood. He's working in their lives. He's speaking and teaching. And yet, they're preoccupied with their lack of material resources. Yeah, yeah, we, we hear you, Jesus, but we don't have any non. This is a problem. We don't have bread. And that's a real problem. <laughs> For the, especially all the, gluten, uh, the non-gluten-free people resonate with that. It's all they could see. Uh, for us, it could be the same. You know, we need this thing, and we don't have it. And this lack is accompanied by a fear that this need will not be met, that there won't be enough. And then that need suddenly becomes the only thing in our vision. This phenomenon has come to be known as scarcity mindset or scarcity mentality. And in short, scarcity mentality is a way of thinking marked by believing there will never be enough. Whether it's food, money, shelter, emotional care, something in your career, or any other need, our belief that there won't be enough so pervades our thinking so it becomes that everything we say and do starts to stem from a place of lack. And the result is that our need becomes all we can see. We see the whole world through a lens of what we do not have or through this lens or our vision is colored by this lens of lack. And as followers of Jesus, scarcity mentality, this belief that there isn't enough, is a problem for at least two reasons. First, it blinds us from seeing Jesus' work in our lives and stops us from hearing his voice. Remember, the disciples had seen Jesus multiply bread twice now. They've seen him heal the blind, the sick, and the lame, and still they were sucked into this mentality. Their scarcity mindset made them completely unable to hear what Jesus wanted to say to them. Some researchers on scarcity mentality uh, discussed their findings on NPR, and they said this, When you realize that something important is missing in your life, your brain can only seem to focus on that one thing. When you really want something, you start to focus on it obsessively. When you're hungry, it's hard to think of anything other than food. Scarcity, or I would add even perceived scarcity, produces a kind of tunnel vision. And it explains why when we're in a hole, we often lose sight of long-term priorities and dig ourselves even deeper. So the question that rises is, what is it for you? 
What is the thing that you are convinced is missing from your life and it's starting to close in on your vision? Maybe you're preoccupied with not having a significant other. And so that longing consumes your thought life. Your prayers are shaped by it. Your time is shaped by this longing for a boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. Perhaps you become so consumed with this lack in your life that you are fundamentally unable to see God's mercy and kindness at work in your current life. Maybe for you, it's your actual marriage. And for some of us, it shows that's the problem either way. And all you can think about is how your marriage will never be what you want it to be. It'll never be perhaps what it was. It'll never be what someone, else marriage, someone else's marriage is. Uh, maybe it's your life and your vocation. You're not in the job you want. You're not living the career you want. You're not making the amount of money you want, reaching the potential that you want and think that you have. And all you can see is this lack in your life. And so it blinds you to, to what is good and beautiful and from the hand of God in your life. And whatever this desire is, left uncontained, it blinds us to God's work in our lives. Because each time a hunger is met, we get the job we wanted, we get in the relationship we wanted, we start getting the paycheck we wanted, a new hunger is awakened within us. Have you noticed this in yourself? That each time you get that thing, you had this thing you wanted, as soon as you get it, you want something else. Okay, only three of us are being honest. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> We, we always find a new excuse to want and to worry and to be discontent. And if you don't believe me, ask people who make far more money than you if they have enough money yet and how much money they would like to make. It is always more. If the Genesis narrative teaches us anything about the human condition, it's that we have within us the capacity for want and for feeling like we lack, despite having all that we could actually long for. Our sense of fulfillment and abundance must run deeper than what is immediately in front of us. The second problem with a scarcity mentality is this, that if God is how Jesus described him, and the scriptures say that Jesus reveals to us what God actually looks like, that, that God once upon a time, no one had seen him, but now that we've seen the son, we've seen what God looks like. And if that's true, that God is a caring father who loves us, who's for us, and who's willing to meet our needs, then to buy into a scarcity mentality is to buy into a lie about God. Notice, Jesus' response to his disciples says, you of little faith. Jesus sees their preoccupation with bread as a form of unbelief. It's not a cognitive problem. It's, it's a problem of not believing and this phrase, you of little faith, is used by Jesus at a few other key moments in the Gospel of Matthew. The first of which is in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, hey, hey look, look at the birds. No, notice how carefree they are. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't, aren't you more important to God than they are? And then Jesus points and he sees some flowers. He says, hey, look, look at the lilies of the field. They're not worried about what they're going to wear. And yet, look at them. Each season comes and goes, and they're beautifully adorned. The flowers remain beautiful. Aren't you more valuable to the Father than those flowers are? And then he says, oh, you of little faith. And he goes on, your, your, your father, you know, your father sees all of these needs and worries and wants. He sees the spoken and the unspoken longings. 
and he knows that you need them. So Jesus invites us to live into this central truth of the kingdom. God is a kind and generous father who actually cares for you. That there is enough for you right now in your current life, not as it could be, but as it is right now, there's enough for you. Abundance is the new normal in the kingdom of God. Or as worship leader Kanye West said, we have everything we need. (laughs) Zooming out, uh, both both of these stories make this point clear. It's possible to miss Jesus when he is right in front of you. It's possible for him to be working and for you not to see it. It's possible for him to be speaking and for you to be unable to hear As Davies said earlier, the faith that holds the soul also rules one's perception. In other words, no no person is unbiased. No, No person sees and hears and perceives the perfect clarity as we like to believe. And that's because as human beings, we have within us this scary capacity to take information in and bend it in our minds to reinforce what we already believe about reality. And this is true whether you bend things towards cynicism and scarcity. You can always find a reason to be negative, to undermine, to be cynical. You can always find a reason to still see scarcity in your life. And it's also true that you can, you can take in information and, see, and have it drive you towards faith, towards seeing a world marked with abundance and God's generosity and kindness. And in our story, Jesus warns and he challenges our tendency to have our vision warped by sign-seeking, by scarcity mentality. If I'm brutally honest, I I see both of these at work in my life. For me, uh, cynicism has at times been a vicious downward spiral. I find myself stuck in this place of, of wanting God to prove himself, asking him to prove that he's real, that he's worth following, to work on my terms, but not really believing he'll be good to me, lacking the faith and the risk to trust him. Uh, I've heard stories about people being healed. You know, I've, I've, I've been in the room when someone who was deaf heard for the first time. And, you know, I've been the person who's been praying for someone and seen them healed. And you know what? Sometimes those moments come, and I'll still think, I mean, were they really healed? Or was this just the power of positive thinking? And if I'm really honest, I like to justify it by saying that I just have a personality that won't allow me to blindly follow, which is just code for me saying I'm kind of arrogant. Uh, And the result is that my cynicism keeps me from experiencing the life with Jesus I long for. It cuts me off from worship. When I come in here and I'm cynical, I don't get to worship and engage with God. When I, when I um, am cynical, I don't get to enjoy intimacy with God the way I, I, it cuts me off from joy and the life that I actually have. Because deep down, we all know that cynicism isn't actually the best way to live. Cynics don't have more fun. It's just not. They don't. Uh, none of us really admire cynical people. It's like, oh, I want to be like you so bad. I just want to be so critical and bitter and cynical. Uh, And so for some of us, the invitation of Jesus is to willfully set aside cynicism. And that is a choice. And to embrace faith. 
to allow our ears to become unstopped so that we can experience the life with Jesus that we actually long for. To release our long list of signs and questions and all the negativity that we can want to kind of run things through, the way we want to challenge and push back so we can actually see the signs right in front of us. At other times, I fall into the pitfall of scarcity mentality on the other end. Um, I'm obsessively perfectionistic, so I can always see what I'm lacking. In fact, uh, this has come up recently with having a child. For so long, I have looked forward to being a father, that I felt like fatherhood is a part of my vocation and calling. And yet, here I am, I have this beautiful baby girl. I have an incredible spouse who mothers her so well. And I can still see a thousand ways that my situation could be better. <laughs> well, you know, she, she could be a better sleeper. Uh, you know, it'd be nice if we had a little more cash. Uh, it'd be nice if she was a little bit older and on and on we can go. And tragically, my constant longing for things to be better my mentality of scarcity, really, because that's what that is. It's believing that what I have right now isn't enough. Gives me tunnel vision, and it keeps me from seeing Jesus' goodness in my life. It keeps me from hearing his voice. I become consumed. And honestly, when I'm in that zone, I don't, I don't commune with him. If anything, he feels far away. I miss Jesus when he's right in front of me. And that's not a Jesus problem. That's not a problem with my life. Uh, I have a beautiful life. And God's kindness is really, it's written all over it. That's a me problem. It's a problem with how I see the world, with how I perceive, with how I understand. And so as we near close, I think there, are, there really are two clear invitations for us. First, some of us need to search our hearts and ask, where have I grown cynical? What is the thought pattern I'm stuck in, the sign I'm holding out for, the way I'm challenging God and asking him to prove himself? Because if you're like me, it doesn't lead to joy. Jesus has more for you. There is life beyond cynicism. You don't have to live this way. And so the invitation of Jesus is to put an active choice to put off cynicism. In Greek, the word for repent is metanoia, and it means to change your mind to think differently, to have your mind renewed. So perhaps Jesus is inviting you to change your mind, to make an active choice to see the world, not through a lens of cynicism, of questions, of skepticism, of undermining, of negativity, but of faith. And to let the Spirit renew your mind. What is on offer for you is to actually live and see the world differently. You can change. You don't have to live that way. For others of us, uh, perhaps we need to ask ourselves, you know, where, where do I see scarcity when Jesus would invite me to see abundance? What is the need, the longing, the thing I'm hoping for that's blocking my vision? Is it a job? Is it, is it a relational situation? Something about your body, your talent that you just think, if I had this, if it was like this way, um, then I would feel like I have enough. And perhaps Jesus is inviting you to hold that thing, that longing, that sense of scarcity right in front of him. And instead of grasping or for more, to offer it to him and to trust that the Father will take care of you. What, what, if, what if he wants to remind you that the Father actually cares about you? I mean, hear this. 
that when the Father looks at you, his heart swells with warmth. That he doesn't, he doesn't want to care for you just out of obligation. He's not just bound to you. But he genuinely loves you and genuinely wants to meet your needs. And so what if the Father is actually inviting you to see him that way? Jesus has something better for us than both of these. Jesus invites us to become the kind of people who, when we look out and we see the world, we don't see scarcity, we don't see cynicism, but we see a world littered with his kindness and his generosity, that we see God's life all over the place, that he's a world full of his working and speaking and signs all over the place. He calls us past cynicism and into a faith that sees his fingerprints all over reality. And he invites us to open our vision broader than our scarcity, to see him in your actual life, because right now in your current life as it is, there is enough for you. And instead to believe that God is kind and that he'll take care of us. Another way to think of this is that the invitation for us is to move from a place of having our minds closed having our minds open. Or another picture from having our arms crossed or our fists grasping, longing for more, to having our hands open, that we could hear and receive 